Hello and welcome to Borderlines, a podcast for the discussion of Canadian immigration and border-related issues. I'm Steve Muritz. In this episode, we go beyond Canada to Hong Kong. Peter was recently in Montreal and when he was there, interviewed Robert Thibault, a Canadian human rights and immigration lawyer who was also counsel to Edward Snowden, the famous NSA whistleblower who revealed to the world exactly how much government surveillance everyone is under. Peter and Robert discuss both what it is like to practice refugee law in Hong Kong and also what exactly occurred when Mr. Thibault helped Edward Snowden in Hong Kong. I hope you enjoy. And once again, if you like the podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. And you can also reach us on Twitter at P underscore E-D-E-L-M-A-N-N for Peter and at S-M-E-U-R-R-E-N-S for me on Twitter. Indiana, unfortunately, is not on Twitter, uh, but you can reach her at her at her firm's website, McCray Immigration, M-C-C-R-E-A. Once again, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello, hello, welcome to the Borderlines podcast. Uh, my, this is Peter Edelman. Uh, I'm here with Robert Thibault. Uh, we've, uh, I was in Montreal and uh, had the, the fortune of being here when, uh, when Robert was here giving a presentation at a conference. Uh, Robert Thibault is, uh, was one of the lawyers and uh, the, uh, the Canadian lawyer who represented and, and assisted uh, Edward Snowden when he was in Hong Kong. And uh, Robert's been uh, practicing in Hong Kong for some time. So uh, we've, uh, we have the good fortune of being able to, to talk to, to Robert today. So thank you very much for taking the time to, to talk with us. Um, and uh, welcome to Borderlines. Thanks very much, Peter. Uh, so um, I guess I wanted to, just wanted to start maybe to give our, our listeners a bit of background about how a Canadian ends up in, uh, um, ends up in Hong Kong. What's, what was your career path that led you to be in, uh, in Hong Kong? Uh, and and what, what is the kind of work that you're doing and that you were doing and that you are doing now uh, in Hong Kong? Uh, as, I was born and raised in Montreal and uh, uh, went to McGill University. And I did a degree in chemical engineering there. And Montreal is a very Eurocentric uh, city, uh, old city with a lot of history. And, and uh, there, there was a lot of focus, traditional lot of focus on, on, I guess, the East Coast relationship with Europe. And in the late 80s, uh, a lot was happening, starting to happen in Asia with the Japanese economy and uh, Korea, Taiwan, Singapore. And uh, being on the East Coast, uh, I was very curious about what was going on in Asia. So after I graduated, a lot of my classmates had gone to backpack in Europe, but I decided I'd go out to Asia. So that was in the late 80s, and uh, landing in Southeast Asia, in South Asia, I, I realized that uh, there was a lot happening and that Asia was, was changing. And uh, this was going to be an important part of of the future. And so I decided to stay in Asia and uh, uh, worked uh, a few years as a management consultant, as an engineer, then a chemical engineer, then a management consultant. And then at one point I decided to go back to the university to do my law degree and um, based myself in Hong Kong 
and um, in 2005 was called to the Hong Kong bar and uh, have been practicing as a barrister, as a litigator uh, since that time. Um, just to clarify, the legal system in Hong Kong is uh, similar to the British system, the UK system, where the professions are, are split, they're separated, where you have barristers, uh, members of the Hong Kong Bar Association practicing law, and then you have solicitors, uh, members of the law society um, who establish uh, law firms. So I'm instructed usually by solicitors to act for, for the clients, the lay clients. And what kind of uh, so what kind of work are you have you been primarily doing, or what kind of work, uh, like what areas of law do you practice in? Okay, when when I started off, and and this is very common for for barristers, as I was doing doing primarily criminal work, and 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 we all you know when you start your your career as as, as a barrister, you want to be in the courts as much as possible. You want to be, um, you know, developing your skill sets and honing your skills and. Um, examination chief, cross-examination, and um, so in the beginning, probably about 80% of my work was criminal, and uh, about 20% was uh, doing commercial corporate work. And then uh, a part of my practice, part of my interest was um, in criminal proceedings, looking at the constitutional aspects of it. And um, so in quite a few of my cases, I was bringing constitutional challenges as part of trial work. And, and, and doing appeals. Um, I would say I'm, my strengths are more at the appellate level. Uh, I really enjoy doing appellate work. Um, at, then at a, in around 2010, the end of 2009, um, there had previously been a few landmark judgments that had compelled the Hong Kong authorities to put in a screening system uh, that complied with the high standards of procedural fairness, uh, where asylum seekers in Hong Kong would be afforded uh, publicly uh, funded um, lawyers uh, who could advise them and uh, help them in the preparation of their cases and do uh, the advocacy work involved in, in asylum claims. So from 2010 onwards, um, I started doing more and more work on the uh, doing originally the only basis of, of uh, asylum claims in Hong Kong uh, that the Hong Kong government would entertain were torture claims under the United Nations Convention Against Torture. But uh, after a few years, in 2013, there was a landmark judgment that compelled the Hong Kong government to screen asylum seekers also under Article 33 of the Refugee Convention. So this area of work uh, began displacing uh, a lot of the criminal work I was doing. So I was focused on doing you know, the primary first instance refugee claims, uh, appeal board, appeals for refugee claimants, and judicial reviews in the high court. What, so in terms of the, the claim system in Hong Kong, what is, uh, uh, I mean, where, where are the primary source countries in terms of people who are coming into Hong Kong to make refugee claims? Uh, naturally, uh, because of Hong Kong's proximity uh, in the region to to countries where um, you know there are serious human rights uh, issues where there's failures in rule of law um, you'll see the majority of clients are coming from Southeast Asia and South Asia so I, I would say the vast majority maybe 80 90 percent of uh, asylum seekers and refugee claimants come in from 
these two regions. Um, if you look at the countries from Southeast Asia, primarily from the Philippines and Indonesia, and uh, from for South Asia, uh, most of the claimants coming in are from Sri Lanka, and a lot of them. Uh, they came in, in in relation to circumstances of the civil war uh, that ended in May 2009. Uh, Bangladesh, large numbers of individuals coming from Bangladesh seeking asylum, um, and Pakistan. Uh, there are also a fair number from India, but I would say the primary countries are Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, and Pakistan. Uh, there are serious human rights uh, issues in these countries and serious issues with rule of law. My minority geographies, uh, claimants coming in would be from East and West Africa. I, I have enough, I've had a number of clients and still have a number of clients from Somalia and from West Africa, uh, quite a few clients from West Africa, Ghana, Togo, uh, Nigeria, Guinea-Bissau, Cameroon. And so what does, what does the claim process look like in just in terms of what's what's the, the, the work of a refugee lawyer in, in Hong Kong? Is it, uh, I imagine it's, in, in our discussions, it seems to be a bit different than, than here. Uh, do, you, do you want to just walk us quickly through the process of what a, what a refugee claim looks like and, and what your chances of success are in, in, uh, in making a refugee claim in Hong Kong? Well, the, the, the claim system uh, that was originally put into place uh, was in 2004. Uh, and it was only put into place because the court of Hong Kong's Court of Final Appeal, which is the equivalent of the Supreme Court of Canada, had handed down a judgment called Prabhakar uh, concerning a uh, Sri Lankan Tamil uh, asylum seeker, uh, that there had to be some sort of screening mechanism. Because up to 2004, asylum seekers were coming into Hong Kong, and the Hong Kong government would not inform them of their rights to seek asylum with the government, and would just either deport them or mention to them that, oh, they could go to the UNHCR sub-office, which is not a jurisdiction in Hong Kong. It's a separate jurisdiction. In 2008, uh, the High Court in, in Hong Kong handed out a judgment saying that this is an illegal system. It's, it's grossly unfair. And there has to be a high standard of fairness uh, afforded to these asylum seekers, meaning there should be lawyers involved advising them and helping them draft documents and, and, and participating in, in a process where there's an appeal uh, afforded to anyone whose claims are rejected. Now, just to put this in perspective, um, up till 2010, when this supposedly lawful screening system was put into place, there had not been one case accepted by the Hong Kong government ever for an asylum seeker. And so in 2010, the, what they called the enhanced screening mechanism was put into place. And it, it, it's a straightforward process where you know, the clients would come in, you'd advise, the, you'd advise the clients on the procedure, the clients would provide instructions. And as asylum or refugee lawyers know, uh, sometimes that can be a very difficult process because you have to gain the client's trust and they take them time to disclose everything that they know. And with clients that suffer from mental illness, for example, post-traumatic stress disorder, they may not remember or recall a lot of the events. So that, that's the first instance process. And the immigration department will typically will screen the clients. 
and then make a determination or decision. Um, and that's by the immigration department, uh, the removal assessment section. Um, with a rejection, the clients have a right, um, there's a legislative provision under the immigration ordinance, to appeal to what's called the Torture Claim Appeal Board. Um, and again, up till 2012, uh, thousands of cases were screened, but uh, not one case was accepted. So up to that point, you had a 0% acceptance rate. And then in 2013, the whole system had to be revamped because the Court of Final Appeal compelled the Hong Kong government to screen clients under the International Covenant on Civil Political Rights for ill treatment and torture and under Article 33 of the Refugee Convention. So all the clients, some of my clients who were screened or whom were screened between 2004 and 2008 had to be rescreened again in between 2012 and 2014 and had to be rescreened again after 2014 because the Hong Kong government had refused to put into place from the start, a system that screens asylum seekers on, under all applicable grounds. Now, to put this into context, the Hong Kong government does not recognize that refugees exist. They have a clear policy and a legislative regime that views asylum seekers and refugee claimants as illegal immigrants, or as the Hong Kong government likes to call them, all economic migrants. Uh, which is which is wrong. This is really an accurate uh, representation of many people who are who have a well-founded fear of persecution or uh, there's substantial grounds to believe they'll be tortured. So the system the system that's in place now is called the unified screening system, and it's a completely closed system. The immigration decisions are never published, not even redacted versions. The appeal board. Uh, is a fragmented board that is comprised of the Torture Claim Appeal Board for Convention Against Torture uh, applicants and the Non-Refoulement Claims Petitions Office, which is uh, the same board, but it handles claims for um, ill treatment and torture under the International Covenant on Civil Political Rights and Article 33 um, of the Refugee Convention. All these hearings are behind closed doors. The public's not allowed in, the media's not allowed in, and all the decisions that are handed down are all confidential and are never published. And to date, the acceptance rate since 1992 of asylum seekers is about 0.2%. And we're talking about 36, 37,000 refugees, asylum seekers in Hong Kong, pretty much all rejected. So 36,000 refugees over that entire period yes, of time. all rejected, okay. except for, I think, about 120 in the last few years. And, and the ones who've been accepted, it's, there were not exactly 120 or about 120 claims that were successful. It was apparent, let's say a family three or family four, that was recognized either as a successful CAT uh, convention claimant for torture or Article 33. So the actual number of family, including family claims, is less than that statistic. But um, the UN Committee Against Torture, um, in its December 2015 uh, report, uh, periodical report, had basically found that the Hong Kong screening system, without uh, having any decisions published, really 
created huge uncertainties within the refugee and asylum community as they would not know what cases really that they were to, to be answering, particularly on appeal. It's the closed system, uh, in my view, also makes the whole process illegal because under Article 10 of the Hong Kong Bill of Rights, and there's a equivalent pr provision under the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, is that you, it's presumptive that you have to have an open system. And the principle is that the decision makers behave better when the eyes of the public are upon them. And that's why you have open justice in Canada. You have open justice in other common law or civilian uh, legal systems. But the authorities in Hong Kong, and mind you, this is the Immigration Department and the Security Bureau, have chosen to keep everything closed, a completely closed system. So in my view, it's an unconstitutional system. It also infringes on the freedom of expression um, fundamental right, in that freedom of expression is not just the fundamental right to express oneself, but it's the fundamental right to receive the information, to receive the expressions of others. So you have this completely closed system that's, and, and the UN Committee Against Torture described it in very polite words, that Hong Kong, they are disturbed or concerned about the distinctively high threshold uh, for asylum seekers to succeed in Hong Kong. So it's a very difficult system for lawyers and for the refugee community. And so what does what does life look like for the refugees or the, the asylum claimants caught up in this system in Hong Kong? Like everyday life, I, I, and I, I understand that some of these clients are people that you would have worked with for many years, I take it. Correct. And um, like, what what does life look like for this refugee community, or this this is the this community of, of asylum claimants in uh, in Hong Kong? It it it's a it's a tragic and her horrific existence for asylum seekers in Hong Kong, um, in that the Hong Kong government treats them as criminals. Um, number one, they can't even raise an asylum claim or refugee claim with the Hong Kong government unless they commit a criminal offense first. So they either have to enter illegally into Hong Kong or they have to overstay their visa. If an asylum seeker comes into Hong Kong saying, look, I have no money, uh, I've been tortured, I've been persecuted, I've been sexually assaulted and raped, if they go to the Hong Kong authorities and say, look, I, I am raising an asylum pr uh, protection claim, the authorities will tell them, well, you have a valid visa and you don't have to leave the territory, so we can't help you. And this is very disturbing because you have, for example, victims of gender persecution or human trafficking who are extremely vulnerable and they cannot get the immediate help and support that they require, um, you know, and, and which they're entitled to. Um, this system of being forced to break the law to raise a refugee claim um, basically is a tactic by the Hong Kong government to criminalize everybody and to make its argument that, oh, you're just an economic migrant coming in here illegally. Um, and this is in contravention to uh, the Refugee Convention, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's Article 34 of the Refugee Convention. Um, that says that an asylum seeker's uh, refugee claimant has an absolute right to uh, cross any border uh, to secure their safety. 
um, and Article 14 of the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights says that no asylum seekers should be punished for crossing a border uh, if they do so to secure their life, their liberty, or safety. And Hong Kong completely ignores that. In fact, over the last few years, the Hong Kong government has been going back to old documents where they referred to refugee claimants and asylum seekers and redacting those and in place putting illegal immigrants. It's a very disturbing situation. Uh, basically, it's border control and criminalization of legitimate asylum seekers. Um, and once, once they're able to raise a claim, they're arrested. Uh, most often, they're detained at the Castle Bay uh, Immigration Center, which is basically a prison. And, uh, I've had clients from Somalia uh, shot three times, journalists locked up in there and treated like criminals. Uh, when in fact, they had fled for their lives. Um, once they, they're put out on recognizance um, and they're allowed to live in the community, they can apply for humanitarian assistance um, from the Social Welfare Department. They, the Social Welfare Department uses a contractor called International Social Services, Hong Kong, which is a branch of the Swiss headquarters. And uh, there's a contract between the Social Welfare Department and International Social Services, but the Hong Kong government refuses to disclose that to the public. Uh, the Hong Kong government portrays the system as being there to meet the basic needs of asylum seekers. The reality is, is the Social Welfare Department and International Social Services do not meet the basic needs of asylum seekers. So you have individuals and families where they don't have enough food, they can't pay their rent, they can't pay electricity in full, or uh, cooking gas. They don't have enough transport money. They don't have fees for, for their children to buy books or school clothing. So they're living in conditions of being destitute below the poverty line. And they're in fear constantly of being evicted. The Court of Appeal has indicated that these conditions over a long period of time uh, subjects, uh, may subject the asylum seekers to cruel and inhumane um, and degrading treatment. Um, and um, you'd ask yourself, well, why don't they go and work? Well, they're not allowed to work. If they do work and they're caught working, and I've had clients who've been caught working, and they've been caught working because they don't have enough food. Uh, they can't pay their rent and they don't want to be put on the street. They don't want their children on the street. Um, and quite often they're doing menial tasks for a, a, a pittance for almost no money just so they're not evicted. And uh, the courts are heartless in Hong Kong. Um, uh, the, if, if these clients plead not guilty and they're found guilty after trial, uh, they're sent to prison and it's, it's, a, it's a strict tariff. It's not absolute, but it's strict. Uh, 22 and a half months. 22 and a half months for working to get some food or some cooking gas. Or, and if they plead guilty, then they're sentenced to 15 months, so you know, uh, a year and a quarter. Um, so this is very, very harsh. Um, what you see is you see the asylum seekers coming in, and there are government healthcare services, but the psycholo psychologists, psychiatrists, medical doctors um, uh, are not typically not of ethnic minority status, they're typically Hong Kong Chinese, and they have 
there's a lack of training in terms of treating and dealing with uh, people who suffer from mental illness or have physical elements from being tortured or persecuted in their own countries. Uh, a lack of cultural sensitivity. Um, and the asylum seekers don't get the support they need. So a lot of the asylum seekers in Hong Kong have been in Hong Kong since the early 2000s. I have one client from 1996. Um, and they don't have the humanitarian support, don't have the healthcare support. There's a lack of um, community support, social structure. They're discriminated institutionally and marginalized socially, um, and they're left in limbo. There is a phenomenon that happens to them, um, and it's called constructive refoulement, where after five, 10 years, not being able to work, not even volunteer work, if they're caught volunteer doing volunteer work, or for somebody, they're looking at almost two years prison. So they're, they really don't have any support structure. And after five or 10 years, what you find is a lot of these clients, um, they struggle emotionally, they struggle psycho psychologically, and um, they start to break down. You know, uh, their, their ability to make rational decisions becomes compromised. And you'll see a certain number every year who decide that they'd rather risk going back home and dying there than to continue to uh, see their uh, mental fitness deteriorate and suffer in Hong Kong. So they break and they embark on what I would describe as risky behavior, where they make a decision, I'd rather take my risks back home, which is completely irrational. But with a screening system that's, that's caused them to be rescreened and delayed for more than a decade for most of my clients, for them, they feel this is their only way out. Um, the Hong Kong government will say, yeah, go back to your home country, including Somalia. I have one client who went back to Somalia. And the Hong Kong government says, we'll allow you to leave, but you have to sign a statement saying Somalia is safe. It's safe to go back there. And if you don't sign this document, we won't let you leave the jurisdiction. But the government says they won't let you leave the jurisdiction. When they leave the jurisdiction, the Hong Kong government says, you see, these are fake refugees. And um, so this is very, very hard on, on these vulnerable people who are entitled and should be afforded the protections that every asylum seeker and refugee deserves, but in Hong Kong are denied. So... This is the system that you were primarily working in when you met at Snowden, or when you and how, so how did you come to become involved in what I, I imagine is not the profile of ref of most of your claimants, uh, or perhaps of any claimant that anybody's had. Um, definitely not the profile of any of my claimants. Um, what did you want to maybe just explain how you came to to become involved in in a case like Mr. Snowden's? Um. Basically, the the refugee community, they were very well aware of who I was. Uh, by 2013, I was doing many, many cases. I'd also been doing cases, human rights cases, um, involving the trans, transgender community, involving uh, religious minority communities. So there was awareness of who the human rights lawyers were, um, who they were, and, and who, were, who were really fighting hard for their clients. So I was uh, one of those lawyers that, you know, Edward Snowden was, was seeking out. Uh, after his disclosures on the 9th, 10th of June, 2013, 
um, you know, there was a recognition that uh, you know, he could be extradited. So the higher profile cases you'll see as being the extradition cases. But with extradition cases, um, uh, typically there, there's a defense in committal proceedings or extradition proceedings uh, that an individual cannot be um, handed over or surrendered to a third country or the requesting country um, if there is or grounds that the person would be uh, discriminated against politically. So basically, it's 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 a there are provisions in the Fugitive Offenders Ordinance that provide a defense that the government government should not hand it over to anybody if they're going to be sent back and not be discriminated against politically just, uh, or on religion or any other grounds. And just for our listeners, I'll uh, I'll point those those who are not familiar with the extradition process in Canada, which sounds very similar to the one uh, that uh, uh, Mr. Thibault is, is describing. Uh, we had a, a podcast with Amanda Lord from the Department of Justice uh, in the last few months. So if you go back a few episodes and look for that one, uh, we had a discussion of this very issue uh, and discussed the Badesha case in Canada that deals with this very issue. So for those of you not familiar with the extradition context, you may want to go back and look at some of the, uh, have a listen to uh, our chat with Amanda Lord. Sorry, uh, I'll let you continue because we've... uh... Um, So uh, with Mr. Snowden's case, um, you know, his primary concern was um, what what his rights were in Hong Kong, and uh, Mr. Snowden himself, uh, extremely high profile case because of the disclosures he made about uh, the U.S. government criminal and illegal conduct of utilizing electronic mass surveillance on its own civilians, but also on the global community with the Five Eyes, which includes Canada, Australia, the U.K., and New Zealand, uh, along with the U.S. So Mr. Snowden had sought out legal advice, and his his case had unique dimensions in that by the time I was able to gain physical access to him, to be with him, to to see him and advise him, uh, there were literally hundreds of reporters surrounding uh, a number of hotels. So it was... um, um, it was a situation where Mr. Snowden wanted to know what his constitutional rights were and, um, and also understand whether he could be extradited to the United States. So um, all I can say is that uh, I was contacted and with, within a very short time I was uh, present with Mr. Snowden. And, and typically with criminal work, because extradition work uh, involving the human rights aspect, the constitutional law aspect, also involves the criminal proceedings in the requesting country. So in any cases where somebody's looking at losing their liberty, uh, as a lawyer, you want to gain access to them immediately. Uh, my experience is, is that no matter what your education level is or experience, is, is once the authorities have the handcuffs on you, um, it is a shock. It's a psychological shock. It's a shock to the system. It's a shock being in a, in a police station. And uh, quite often people, even though they're told their constitutional rights, that they, they don't have to say anything, they don't have, they have a right of non-self-incrimination, that quite often the brightest people will start talking. So it was of urgency to get to Mr. Snowden as soon as possible and to advise him of his rights and to make sure I was with him. The second feature of the case that was you know, unique 
and exceptional was the fact that the Hong Kong government has a history of um, extraordinarily renditioning individuals or allowing that to happen within their jurisdiction. So over the last couple decades, you've seen mainland Chinese police come across the border and literally um, grab uh, Hong Kong or mainland Chinese people in Hong Kong and rendition them across the border without any any due process rights. Uh, and the Hong Kong government has allowed this to happen and continues to allow that to happen. There's also the case of the um, uh, Sami al-Sadi in, in the early 2000s, where a Libyan national had been coming through Hong Kong. And at the request of the British and the American authorities, the Hong Kong authorities illegally detained him, his wife, and his children at the Hong Kong International Airport. And uh, he was denied access to a lawyer, denied his due process rights, and um, the Hong Kong authorities assisted the British and the Americans to put him on a, uh, a special charter flight where the Americans and the British flew him to Libya where he was tortured. And this is a disgrace uh, of, uh, of the Hong Kong government. They should have never let that happen. So when Mr. Snowden was in Hong Kong, um, there was the reality, practical reality, that if the Hong Kong authorities or any foreign authorities knew where Mr. Snowden was, that he could be grabbed and renditioned. And um, so this is a legacy of um, Hong Kong's uh, legacy, their reputation. So um, for this case, there was a, a highest level of urgency to gain access to Mr. Snowden, advise him, get him to the UNHCR, and then to get him underground where he couldn't be located. Because um, there was a great fear that there'd be unlawful conduct on the part of Hong Kong or the U.S. government or some other government who had an interest in Mr. Snowden. So do you want to maybe just walk us through the so what was the legal process or the, the legal strategy to the extent that you can that you're able to share it with us? Do you want to just walk us through the, the legal context and, and the legal strategy that uh, that unfolded in, in Mr. Snowden's case? Uh, the priority for Mr. Snowden was to um, remove him from the Mira Hotel because it was it was being surrounded by journalists. Um, so we didn't want. Uh, you know, any authorities uh, apprehending Mr. Snowden, um, you know, if they were going to apprehend Mr. Snowden, it would have to be lawful. So my concern is that there would be some unlawful uh, process that would deny Mr. Snowden of his rights and he'd disappear. Um, so the priority was to get him to the United Nations, um, the UNHCR office. Um, that's a separate jurisdiction to Hong Kong. And at that office, he could raise a refugee claim. He had no rights to raise any asylum claims with the Hong Kong government because he had a valid visa. Um, by the way, the UNHCR office stopped screening any refugee claims in 2014 after the 2013 Court of Final Appeal judgment that the Hong Kong government had to do screening under Article 33. So the priority was to get Mr. Snowden there he had to physically enter, and he had to raise his hand, saying, "Look, I'm seeking asylum. I'm seeking a refugee status determination. Um, I can't go back to the United States because my life, liberty uh, are at risk. I have a well-founded fear of persecution." And, um, so that was the first step, and the strategy was to stay ahead of everybody, whether it was the media or a foreign government. 
it was of utmost importance that we move faster than any government could think. So we were in and out of the UNHCR. Um, I understand the, the day after we were in and out of the UNHCR, um, the media were camped out in front of the UNHCR offices. So we were a day ahead of the media. And, and in any event, um, once Mr. Snowden had raised his uh, refugee claims, uh, the next priority was to put him underground. And the strategy was to place him with a group of people or individuals um, where he would be safe, um, there would be compassion and humanity, where he'd be able to collect his thoughts and then think carefully about you know, the legal options that he was being provided with in terms of advice. Um, the strategy I took was that he, in going underground, he would have to be uh, in a location where it would be the last place people would think of looking. So it was it was twofold, threefold. One, asylum seekers I knew and I trusted, and I knew they were good people, and they they had a history of helping other asylum seekers because the only support structure they really have is the asylum seeking community themselves. Uh, the second issue was putting them into a building. Uh, putting Mr. Snowden in to, with a family or an individual in a building where there are no elevators with CCTV or any surveillance. Um, and then the third issue was to place him in the most populated area of Hong Kong because they wouldn't be expecting Mr. Snowden to go out for a sandwich or you know, a bowl of noodles uh, or a nice meal. Uh, people would be expecting him that he'd be hiding someplace at the the uh, geographic edges of Hong Kong. So, um, and placing him with the refugee community, uh, that was the core part of the strategy because they, Mr. Snowden himself was a refugee claimant at that time. And he, he now belonged to that social group, uh, the social group of asylum seekers in Hong Kong. And this is the most marginalized social group in Hong Kong. Uh, they're considered uh, Hong Kong's uh, version of the untouchables. And, um, and uh, Mr. Snowden was brought to three different families, and the families invited him in, and they, they were more than happy to help him. And, um, and the strategy worked. And, and at this time, were there warrants out for Mr. Snowden, or what was the... Like, in, in terms of, of your uh, engagement in... Uh, in assisting to evade detection, the ex- detection. Yeah. Um, was were there any legal impediments to doing that, or was it uh, something that you were like as a, as a as a lawyer? I'm just um, I'm, I'm more just uh, one. I'm curious about the legal context within which you're you're doing this. It's not something that uh, okay. uh, I I I can't be aiding and abetting a fugitive. Okay. If I did that. You know, I would be charged with the criminal offense of aiding and abetting, obstruction of justice, uh, or perverting the course of public justice in Hong Kong. And, uh, you know, I'd be prosecuted, lose my, my law license. Um, so I, I was aware of that. Mr. Snowden was aware of that, that if there was a formal uh, request for his surrender, there'd be an arrest warrant issued in Hong Kong. And, uh, and once I'm made aware of that, or once that was made known to the public, then, you know, 
the refugee clients would be advised that now you you know if you do continue to assist Mr. Snowden that uh, you 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 arrested for aiding and abetting and um, obstruction of justice and um, and I Mr. Snowden understood that he'd be in a situation where he'd either have to surrender himself to the Hong Kong authorities again with with counsel present. Um, or he could make other decisions. Uh, but they would be his decisions, and I could only advise him of what I'm obliged to advise him under the law. Um, but the there was no warrant for his arrest in Hong Kong. There was no formal, uh, effective um, request for his surrender and preliminary request for his arrest by the U.S. government. Uh, it was only on the 21st or 22nd of June... Uh, 22nd of June, that um, the United States government, um, it had been disclosed that they, they've they indicted uh, Mr. Snowden. And at that point, we understood that there would be, uh, there was a concern that there would be a formal request for his arrest. Um, but uh, as it turned out, there was no effective request because there were a number of defects in the U.S., uh, communications with the Hong Kong government. And the most fundamental one is that they they had requested that a man named Edward James Snowden be arrested under uh, the extradition request, except that there was no... My client's name is not Edward James Snowden. My client's name is Edward Joseph Snowden. So the Hong Kong government couldn't comply with the treaty it had, extradition treaty with the US government. There were a number of other defects in the request. Now, I understand that the Hong Kong government had written back to the Department of Justice on that weekend, on that fateful weekend, requesting clarification. But it was on the Sunday morning of um, it's the 23rd or the 24th of June um, that uh, we brought Mr. Snowden to the airport and he was able to check in and pass through customs and immigration uh, without being interfered with. And um, so at no time was Mr. Snowden considered under Hong Kong law a fugitive uh, or evading uh, justice or the authorities. So at no time were the Snowden refugees or the Snowden guardian angels, the seven refugees who sheltered him, at no time had they aided and abetted a fugitive. Um, everything they did was lawful, and everything Mr. Snowden did was lawful. And he exited Hong Kong through lawful channels. Did you did you have any ethical concerns about bringing uh, such a high profile person to uh, the your clients or to these refugee claimants um, in terms of the implications for them? Was there was that something that you? Uh, I'm sure you've been asked, and I know that you've been asked about this before. And and I guess I just. What was your thinking around your your relationship or your obligations towards the the claimants, your other claimant uh, clients? Um, uh, you know, of, of course, there were ethical considerations, and and uh, at, at no time would I, I want to exploit the clients, the Snowden refugees, as my clients. Their trust and confidence in me. Um, this was a completely exceptional, extraordinary set of circumstances. And Mr. Snowden pretty much had almost no options. And um, the circumstances that I was put in as a lawyer, um, I wasn't given the luxury of a few weeks to think about you know, Mr. Snowden's options once he went public and disclosed his identity. 
I was only told, informed of who he was when the whole world knew who he was. And then once I was with him, I was obviously I was provided full instructions and understood his circumstances leading up to that point. And I advised him what his his circumstances are now from this point further. Couldn't take him to, couldn't bring him to another hotel. Couldn't bring him to a public place for surveillance, CCTV cameras. Um, and, uh, you know, one thing I want to stress is that the, the way I viewed Mr. Snowden, uh, no matter how high profile he was or his case, is that he's still a human being and he still has these fundamental rights. And at that point, his status was as a refugee claimant. And uh, Hong Kong is a place where, again, the those who will fall foul of the law or those who are part of the refugee community are completely discriminated against and marginalized. And but these are the same marginalized human beings that have this enormous capacity for um, understanding, empathy, sympathy, and this incredible humanity. And I realized that. Mr. Snowden would be best placed with these families. And, and when I brought them to Mr. Snowden to meet them, uh, they recognized who he was. Uh, not in terms of his profile, but they recognized that here's a man who's in fear for his liberty, in fear for his life, uh, distressed, because they had all been in the same position previously when they fled uh, persecution in their home countries. So... Uh, the primary concern in terms of the, my ethical obligations was to um, advise the clients you know, of who Mr. Snowden was. And, and it was their choice if, if they were willing to help him. And it was in their best interest to keep things confidential because of uh, the nature of the case and the profile of the client. And, and to a certain extent, the clients trusted me and they, they wanted to help me. It was their way of wanting to reciprocate through the hard work I've done for them. And, and I, but I wasn't, ex- I wasn't expecting any of that. I was just asking them, are you comfortable with to have this vulnerable man stay with you? And again, they had done that for so many other refugees in the past. People who've come in, some higher profile than others, who need a, a bed, some food, a place to calm down, um, gather their thoughts together, and then to think about how they're going to proceed forward and then move on. Um, the clients, there's another dimension in that the clients, because they, they can't work, uh, they can't go to school, the adults have no right to education for their education of any kind, um, and they're idle and in limbo, really wanted to do something. They wanted to help this man. And that was within themselves. Um, when they went out to collect a newspaper for Mr. Snowden, because Mr. Snowden was asking them to go out and collect newspapers every day, the first day he was with a respective family, they'd go out and see his picture on the front, and they were shocked. They are like, my gosh, the most wanted man in the world is, is in my house. Uh, Vanessa Rodell has expressed that a number of times uh, you know, when she's been interviewed. Um, but what was interesting is the clients all told me that they were shocked, they took a step back, and within themselves, they made a decision that they really wanted to step forward and, and help Mr. Snowden. So at the end of the day, it was their own decision. They had this resolve that they wanted to protect this man. And they felt he had done nothing wrong. And um, the idea, you know, the, the advice to the clients is that we keep everything quiet 
I don't want them exposed. I don't want them discriminated against. But Oliver Stone brought out a film, Snowden, in 2016, and I had been made aware of that in 2015. Um, that Mr. S Mr. Oliver Stone, the director, um, had included see, uh, certain scenes in the movie uh, depicting the Snowden refugees. So I realized at some point um, the Hong Kong authorities and the authorities around the world would be looking at Hong Kong and looking at who my clients were or are. And uh, I had to advise the clients that, you know, either you step into the sunlight and expose yourself as a means to protect yourself or you try to continue to conceal yourself but with the risk that somebody, a government, a journalist, uh, somebody from a foreign government, security forces may come in and uh, do something terrible to you or you'll be the victim of an enforced disappearance or an abduction or you'll be trafficked out of Hong Kong or, or killed. So the clients felt more comfortable to expose themselves as a means to protect themselves. Um, now, in saying that, a few months before the Snowden film came out, the media were at one of the Snowden refugees' houses, and they were banging on the door. And we don't know, we didn't know why at that time, but I advised the clients that it's possible a third party has disclosed your name. They're aware the film's coming out. After the Snowden film came out, the media were back at that same apartment of the client. But the client, I advised the client to move out while the Snowden film came out. So the clients, I think, had made a sensible decision that it was in their best interest to introduce themselves um, to safeguard themselves. Um, it was unfortunate in December 2016 that the Sri Lankan police decided to send over police officers targeting the Snowden refugees. Um, that wasn't a failure on my part or on the client's part. That was a failure on the part of the Hong Kong government. Again, the Hong Kong government has a history of allowing for foreign police, foreign security forces to come into the jurisdiction and to engage, target, apprehend, and remove people from the jurisdiction. So this, this approach that the Hong Kong government have taken was an open door invitation to any foreign government that if you have an interest in somebody in Hong Kong, you're welcome to come in and target them. So that was a failure on the part of the Hong Kong government. And what's what's happening with the with the Snowden refugees, as you call them now, like these seven uh, refugee claimants in uh, in Hong Kong? Are they they're still in Hong Kong? I understand they're all in Hong Kong. Um, the they're everything's at the appeal stage, and we're waiting for the Hong Kong government to make a decision. And all I can all I can say is that with a 0.2 percent acceptance rate. Um, it's not expected that they'll succeed. And this has nothing to do with the merits of their cases. It's simply a system, a closed system on closed doors where en masse and in large numbers, asylum seekers, almost all asylum seekers, their claims are just rejected. Um, parallel to this, with the assistance of a group of Montreal-based lawyers led by uh, Marc-André Seguin, um, and also uh, Guillaume uh, Rivard and uh, Francis Tourney. Uh, these lawyers um, have been supporting the clients. Um, 
with the refugee claims in Canada. Uh, in 2016, I had approached Mark Andres again, asking, disclosing to him who the Snowden refugees were, and asking him if, uh, if an application could be made for refugee status in Canada. And so we're at a stage where the Minister of Immigration, uh, the Immigration Department, or Ministry's office, they're currently processing, they're assessing the claims of the Snowden refugees. So we're waiting for an answer. The soldier, Ajith, um, because he's not well, he's been in Hong Kong since 2003, um, and he was severely tortured in Sri Lanka. Um, psychologically, he's not well, um, and he's compromised. Uh, so the Canadian lawyers made uh, an application for a temporary resident permit, which is uh, an emergency visa, to, and if granted, would allow uh, Ajith to come to Canada and, and remain in Canada safely and have his refugee claims screened while he's in Canada. So we're waiting for that decision as well. Um, what I would say is that in, in Hong Kong, the clients are not safe um, because of the failures by the Hong Kong government. The Hong Kong government stripped away all their humanitarian assistance for, for most of the clients uh, because the Hong Kong government had asked about Mr. Snowden and they refused to answer. Um, the uh, clients have to report to the Castle Peak Bay Immigration Center, which is a de facto prison, and they're at risk of being uh, immediately detained. They report once every four weeks. If they are detained, there are three children involved, ages two and six and six, uh, two, six, and seven, my apologies, and there's a risk that if the parents are detained, children, the children will be removed from their parents. Um, so the clients are not safe in Hong Kong, and we're asking the Canadian government to um, make a decision on the refugee claims at the earliest time. And that's going to be through the, that's being done through the private sponsorship uh, program, is that right? Through the... Yeah, it's, it, it's uh, through Quebec, and uh, within the Quebec legislative regime, uh, it's either uh, privately sponsored or sponsored uh, through an NGO. And uh, Marc-André Seguin established in late 2016 the NGO for the refugees, uh, which is the sponsoring organization for the Snowden refugees. Um, and their ability to actually put that into action depends on whether the Canadian government or the Hong Kong government recognizes the Snowden refugees as, um, uh, as refugees under the UN Convention, the Refugee Convention. So we're waiting for these decisions before, before the refugees can actually uh, bring them into Canada. And through, for, through Quebec. Through Quebec. Okay. And for our listeners, we'll put a link to for the refugees on the, uh, on the podcast, uh, on the uh, webpage for the, the podcast. Uh, so for those of you who are interested, I, I understand that there is uh, some need for funds to assist these refugees and uh, for, to, to support this organization. Um, just before I, I leave you, because I know that uh, uh, we've got other places to go. Um, so do you want to just, what, what in, in terms of the legal process, what, what ended up happening with Mr. Snowden? What, was the, what were the, the final steps and where, is, where are things at now with him? Well, Mr. Snowden, uh, you know, we were able to assist Mr. Snowden to leave Hong Kong lawfully. 
And his destination was Ecuador, but he was transiting through Moscow. And uh, when he was in Moscow, he he no longer had a valid U.S. passport. That passport had been canceled. And Mr. Snowden um, was stuck in Moscow. Um, This was in June 2013. And then a little more than a month later, the Russian government granted Mr. Snowden a political asylum visa, which was uh, temporary. And it was about six months after that that Mr. Snowden was granted a a business residency visa, um, which is issued to any uh, foreign business person, any foreigner doing business in, in, in Russia. So he's been on that visa ever since. Uh, that visa had been most recently renewed in January 2017. It's valid for three years. So in January 2020, that visa expires. Um, there's, there's no reason to believe and there's no indication from the Russian government that they would not extend his visa again after uh, the current visa expires in 2020. Um, Ed is keeping himself extremely busy. He's a director of the Freedom of the Press Foundation based in San Francisco, uh, advocating for uh, journalists around the world. Um, And he's also very active in in speaking engagements at universities and conferences and uh, continuing uh, uh, doing his efforts to continue the awareness and, and, and debating of the issues on privacy of individuals and um, you know the government powers that exist in terms of electronic mass surveillance, and then the the real and potential abuses by government of uh, individual citizens. And I take it you're continuing your work in Hong Kong, uh, obviously under much more difficult circumstances than we work under here. But uh, um, you know, I've, uh, that's uh, commendable, uh, and uh, you know, it must be a frustrating. Uh, frustrating uphill struggle it sounds like uh, um, it, it is what it is it's um, it's a it's a harsh system it's an unfair system it's it's a system that discriminates against ethnic minorities and the vulnerable and um, but as a lawyer um, you know the my job is to is to you know as a barrister is to act for for those who instruct me and and, and in most of my cases are for the vulnerable and uh it is a difficult environment, but um, you know our job is uh, to act without fear and without favor, and to act in the client's best interests. So I just continue to do that. Um, I continue to act for Mr. Snowden um, in my capacity as a as a lawyer in Hong Kong and under, and under international law, and, um, and it's my intention to continue fighting for my clients. and And I and I have another forty. 40 odd uh, asylum seeking clients in Hong Kong um, who are not as high profile as Mr. Snowden or the Snowden refugees, but who face similar, similar, um, you know, well-founded fears of persecution and ill treatment and torture. So I continue on with your cases. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to, to speak with us today. And uh, it's, uh, it's definitely been a pleasure uh, chatting with you and, and uh, listening to your story. It's, uh, it's definitely inspiring and uh, somewhat daunting to to consider what uh, some of the work that people do in other parts of the world. So thank you very much. Well, thank you, Peter.